Part 5, Chapter 18 of Home Education Series, Volume 1, Home Education. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Home Education Series, Volume 1, Home Education by Charlotte Mason. Part 5, Chapter 18, History. A Storehouse of Ideas. Much that has been said about the teaching of geography applies equally to that of history. Here, too, is a subject which should be to the child an inexhaustible storehouse of ideas, should enrich the chambers of his house beautiful with a thousand tableaux, pathetic and heroic, and should form in him insensibly principles whereby he will hereafter judge of the behavior of nations, and will rule his own conduct as one of a nation. This is what the study of history should do for the child. But what is he to get out of the miserable little chronicle of feuds, battles, and death which is presented to him by way of a reign, all the more repellent because it bristles with dates? As for the dates, they never come right. The tens and units he can get, but the centuries will go astray. And how is he to put the right events in the right reign? when, to him, one king differs from another only in number, one period from another only in date. But he blunders through with it, reads in his pleasant, chatty little history book all the reigns of all the kings from William the Conqueror to William the Fourth, and back to the dim days of British rule. And with what result? This, that, possibly, no way of warping the judgment of the child, of filling him with crude notions, narrow prejudices, is more successful than that of carrying him through some such course of English history, and all the more so if his little textbook be moral or religious in tone, and undertake to point the moral as well as to record the fact. Moral teaching falls, no doubt, within the province of history, but the one small volume which the child uses affords no scope for the fair and reasonable discussion upon which moral decisions should be based nor is the child old enough to be put into the judicial attitude which such a decision supposes. Outlines Mischievous The fatal mistake is in the notion that he must learn outlines, or a baby edition of the whole history of England, or of Rome, just as he must cover the geography of all the world. Let him, on the contrary, linger pleasantly over the history of a single man, a short period, until he thinks the thoughts of that man, is at home in the ways of that period. Though he is reading and thinking of the lifetime of a single man, he is really getting intimately acquainted with the history of a whole nation for a whole age. Let him spend a year of happy intimacy with Alfred, the truth-teller, with the conqueror, with Richard and Saladin, or with Henry V, Shakespeare's Henry V and his victorious army. Let him know the great people and the common people, the ways of the court and of the crowd. Let him know what other nations were doing while we at home were doing thus and thus. If he come to think that the people of another age were truer, larger-hearted, simpler-minded than ourselves, that the people of some other land were, at one time, at any rate, better than we, why, so much the better for him. So are most history books written for children. 
for the matter for this intelligent teaching of history eschew in the first place nearly all history books written expressly for children and in the next place all compendiums outlines abstracts whatsoever for the abstracts considering what part the study of history is fitted to play in the education of the child there is not a word to be said in their favor and as for what are called children's books the children of educated parents are able to understand history written with literary power and are not attracted by the twaddle of reading made easy little history books given judicious skipping and a good deal of the free paraphrasing mothers are so ready at and the children may be taken through the first few volumes of a well-written illustrated popular history of england say as far as the tudors in the course of such reading a good deal of questioning into them and questioning out of them will be necessary both to secure their attention and to fix the facts this is the least that should be done but better than this would be fuller information more graphic details about two or three early epics early history of a nation best fitted for children the early history of a nation is far better fitted than its later records for the study of children because the story moves on a few broad simple lines while statesmanship so far as it exists is no more than the efforts of a resourceful mind to cope with circumstances mr freeman has provided interesting early english history for children but is it not on the whole better to take them straight to the fountainhead where possible in these early years while there are no examinations ahead and the children may yet go leisurely let them get the spirit of history into them by reading at least one old chronicle written by a man who saw and knew something of what he wrote about and did not get it at second hand these old books are easier and pleasanter reading than most modern works on history because the writers know little of the dignity of history they purl along pleasantly as a forest brook tell you all about it stir your heart with the story of a great event amuse you with pageants and shows make you intimate with the great people and friendly with the lowly they are just the right thing for the children whose eager souls want to get at the living people behind the words of the history book caring nothing at all about progress or statutes or about anything but the persons for whose action history is to the child's mind no more than a convenient stage a child who has been carried through a single old chronicler in this way has a better foundation for an historical training than if he knew all the dates and names and facts that ever were crammed for examination some old chronicles first in order of time and full of the most captivating reading is the ecclesiastical history of england of the venerable Bede, who writing of himself so early as the seventh century says it was always sweet to me to learn to teach and to write he has left us says professor morley a history of the early years of england succinct yet often warm with light business-like and yet childlike in its tone at once practical and spiritual simply just and the work of a true scholar breathing love to god and man we owe to beady alone the knowledge of much that is most interesting in our early history william of malmesbury twelfth century says of beady that almost all knowledge of past events was buried in the same grave with him and he is no bad judge for in his chronicles of the kings of england he himself is considered to have carried to perfection the art of chronicle-making 
He is especially vivid and graphic about contemporary events, the story of the dreary civil war of Stephen and Matilda. Meantime, there is Asser, who writes the life of Alfred, whose friend and fellow worker he is. It seems to me right, he says, to explain a little more fully what I have heard from my lord Alfred. He tells us how. When I had come into his presence at the royal will, called Leoniford, I was honorably received by him, and remained that time with him at his court about eight months, during which I read to him whatever books he liked, and such as he had at hand. For this is his most usual custom both night and day, amid his many other occupations of mind and body, either himself to read books, or to listen whilst others read them. When he was not present to see for himself, as at the Battle of Ashdown, Asser takes pains to get the testimony of eyewitnesses. But Alfred, as we have been told by those who were present and would not tell an untruth, marched up promptly with his men to give them battle, for King Ethelred remained a long time in his tent in prayer. Then there are chronicles of the Crusades, contemporary narratives of the Crusades of Richard Coeur de Lyon, by Richard of Devizes, and Geoffrey de Vincenny, and of the Crusade of St. Louis, by Lord John de Joinville. It is needless to extend the list, one such old chronicle in a year, or the suitable bits of one such chronicle, and the child's imagination is aglow. His mind is teeming with ideas. He has had speech of those who have themselves seen and heard. And the matter-of-fact way in which the old monks tell their tales is exactly what children prefer. Afterwards you may put any dull outlines into their hands, and they will make history for themselves. Age of Myths But every nation has its heroic age before the authentic history begins. There were giants in the land in those days, and the child wants to know about them. He has every right to revel in such classic myths as we possess as a nation, and to land him in a company of painted savages by way of giving him his first introduction to his people is a little hard. It is to make his vision of the past harsh and bald as a Chinese painting. But what is to be done? If we ever had an Homeric age, have we not, being practical people, lost all record thereof? Here is another debt that we owe to those old monkish chroniclers. The echoes of some dim, rich past had come down to, at any rate, the twelfth century. They fell upon the ear of a Welsh priest, one Geoffrey of Monmouth, while William of Malmesbury was writing his admirable history of the kings of England, what does Geoffrey do but weave the traditions of the people into an orderly history of the British kings, reaching back all the way to King Brute, the grandson of Aeneas? How he came to know about kings that no other historian had heard of is a matter he is a little roguish about. He got it all, he says, out of that book in the British language which Walter, Archdeacon of Oxford, brought out of Brittany. Be that as it may, here we read of Gorboduc, King Lear, Merlin, Uther Pendragon, and best of all, of King Arthur, the writer making the little finger of his Arthur stouter than the back of Alexander the Great. Here is, indeed, a treasure trove which the children should be made free of ten years before they come to read the idols of the king. Some caution must, however, be exercised in reading Geoffrey of Monmouth. His tales of marvel are delightful, 
but when he quits the marvelous and romances freely about historical facts and personages, he becomes a bewildering guide. Many of these chronicles written in Latin by the monks are to be had in readable English. The only caution to be observed is that the mother should run her eye over the pages before she reads them aloud. Froissart again, most delightful of chroniclers, himself tame about the court of Queen Philippa, when he chose to be in England, from whom else should the child get the story of the French wars? And so, of as much else as there is time for, the principle being that, wherever practicable, the child should get his first notions of a given period not from the modern historian, the commentator and reviewer, but from the original sources of history, the writings of contemporaries. The mother must, however, exercise discrimination in her choice of early chronicles, as all are not equally reliable. Plutarch's Lives In the same way, readings from Plutarch's Lives will afford the best preparation for the study of Grecian or of Roman history. Alexander the Great is something more than a name to the child who reads this sort of thing. When the horse Bucephalus was offered in sale to Philip, at the price of thirteen talents, 2,518 pounds, 15 shillings. The king, with the prince and many others, went into the field to see some trial made of him. The horse appeared very vicious and unmanageable, and was so far from suffering himself to be mounted that he would not bear to be spoken to, but turned fiercely upon all the grooms. Philip was displeased at their bringing him so wild and ungovernable a horse, and bade them take him away. But Alexander, who had observed him well, said, What a horse they are losing for want of skill and spirit to manage him. Philip at first took no notice of this, but upon the prince's often repeating the same expression and showing great uneasiness, he said, Young man, you find fault with your elders as if you knew more than they or could manage the horse better. And I certainly could, answered the prince. If you should not be able to ride him, what forfeiture will you submit to for your rashness? I will pay the price of the horse. Upon this all the company laughed, but the king and prince agreeing as to the forfeiture, Alexander ran to the horse, and laying hold on the bridle, turned him to the sun, for he had observed, it seems, that the shadow which fell before the horse and continually moved as he moved greatly disturbed him. While his fierceness and fury lasted, he kept speaking to him softly and stroking him, after which he gently let fall his mantle, leaped lightly upon his back, and got his seat very safe. Then, without pulling the reins too hard, or using either whip or spur, he set him a-going. As soon as he perceived his uneasiness abated, and that he wanted only to run, he put him in a full gallop, and pushed him on both with the voice and spur. Philip and all his court were in great distress for him at first, and a profound silence took place. But when the prince had turned him and brought him safe back, they all received him with loud exclamations except his father, who wept for joy, and kissing him said, Seek another kingdom, my son, that may be worthy of thy abilities, for Macedonia is too small for thee. Here again, in Norse's inimitable translation, we get the sort of vivid graphic presentation which makes history as real to the child as are the adventures of Robinson Crusoe. To sum up, to know as much as they may about even one short period is far better for the children than to know the outlines of all history. And in the second place, children are quite able to take in intelligent ideas in intelligent language, 
and should by no means be excluded from the best that is written on the period they are about. History Books It is not at all easy to choose the right history books for children. Mere summaries of facts must, as we have seen, be eschewed, and we must be equally careful to avoid generalizations. The natural function of the mind in the early years of life is to gather the material of knowledge with a view to that very labor of generalization which is proper to the adult mind, a labor which we should all carry on to some extent for ourselves. As it is, our minds are so poorly furnished that we accept the conclusions presented to us without demur. But we can at any rate avoid giving children cut-and-dried opinions upon the course of history while they are yet young. What they want is graphic details concerning events and persons upon which imagination goes to work, and opinions tend to form themselves by slow degrees as knowledge grows. Mr. York Powell has, perhaps more than others, hit upon the right teaching for the young children I have in view. In the preface to his Old Stories from British History, he says, The writer has chosen such stories as he thought would amuse and please his readers, and give them at the same time some knowledge of the lives and thoughts of their forefathers. To this end he has not written solely of great folk kings and queens and generals, but also of plain people and children, aye, and birds and beasts too. And we get the tale of King Lear, and of Cuculain, and of King Canute, and the poet Otter, of Havclock, and Uba, and many more, all brave and glorious stories, Indeed, Mr. York Powell gives us a perfect treasure trove in his two little volumes of old stories and sketches from British history, which are the better for our purpose, because children can read them for themselves so soon as they are able to read at all. These tales, written in good and simple English, and with a certain charm of style, lend themselves admirably to narration. Indeed, it is most interesting to hear children of seven or eight go through a long story without missing a detail, putting every event in its right order. These narrations are never a slavish reproduction of the original. A child's individuality plays about what he enjoys, and the story comes from his lips not precisely as the author tells it, but with a certain spirit and coloring which express the narrator. By the way, it is very important that children should be allowed to narrate in their own way, and should not be pulled up or helped with words and expressions from the text. A narration should be original, as it comes from a child that is, his own mind should have acted upon the matter it has received. Narrations which are mere feats of memory are quite valueless. I have already spoken of the sorts of old chronicles upon which children should be nourished, but these are often too diffuse to offer good matter for narration, and it is well to have quite fitting short tales for this purpose. I should like to mention two other little volumes in which children delight, which feed patriotic sentiment and lay a broad basis for historical knowledge. I mean Mrs. Fruin Lord's Tales from St. Paul's and Tales from Westminster Abbey. It is a beautiful and delightful thing to take children informed by these tales to the Abbey or St. Paul's, and let them identify for themselves the spots consecrated to their heroes. They know so much and are so full of vivid interest that their elders stand by instructed and inspired. There are, no doubt, multitudes of historical tales and sketches for children, and some of them, like Miss Brooke Hunt's Prisoners of the Tower, are very good. But let the mother beware. 
there is nothing which calls for more delicate tact in understanding sympathy with the children than this apparently simple matter of choosing their lesson books and especially perhaps their lesson books in history many children of eight or nine will be quite ready to read with pleasure a history of england by h o arnold forster who has long since won his spurs in the field of educational literature in this as in matters of more immediate statecraft mr arnold forster has the gift to see a defect and a remedy an omission and the means of supplying it he saw that english children grew up without any knowledge of the conditions under which they live and of the laws which govern them but since the appearance of the citizen reader and the laws of everyday life we have changed all that the history of england or as the children call it history ignoring the fact that there is any other history than that of england has hitherto been presented to young people as outlines of dates and facts or as collections of romantic stories with little coherence and less result on the fortunes of the country mr arnold forster says in his preface that he is reluctant to introduce his book by any such repellent title as a summary or an outline of english history such titles seem on the face of them to imply that the element of interest and the romance inseparable from the life and doings of individuals are excluded and that an amplified chronological table has been made to do duty for history but to read english history and fail to realize that it is replete with interest sparkling with episode and full of dramatic incident is to miss all the pleasure and most of the instruction which its study if properly pursued can give the author fulfills his implied promise and his work is i venture to say as replete with interest sparkling with episode and full of dramatic incident as is possible considering the limitations imposed upon him by the facts that he writes for uneducated readers and gives us a survey of the whole of english history in a pleasant copiously and wisely illustrated volume of some eight hundred pages how telling and lucid this is for example and how we all wish we had come across such a paragraph in our early studies of architecture on page twenty three we have pictures of two windows one of them is what is called a pointed window all the arches in it go up to a point it was built a long time before the tudor period the other was built in the time of queen elizabeth in it the upright shaft or mullion of the window goes straight up to the top without forming an arch this style of building a window is called the perpendicular style because the mullions of the windows are perpendicular some of the most famous buildings in england built in tudor times and in the perpendicular style are the chapel of king's college cambridge and hatfield house the residence of the marquis of salisbury in herefordshire mr arnold forster has done in this volume for children and the illiterate what professor green did in his shorter history of england for somewhat more advanced students awakening many to the fact that history is an entrancing subject of study this is a real introduction to real history the portraits are an especially valuable feature of the work dates in order to give definiteness to what may soon become a pretty wide knowledge of history mount a sheet of cartridge paper and divide it into twenty columns letting the first century of the christian era come in the middle and let each remaining column represent a century b c or a d as the case may be then let the child himself write or print as he is able the names of the people he comes upon in due order in their proper century 
We need not trouble ourselves at present with more exact dates, but this simple table of the centuries will suggest a graphic panorama to the child's mind, and he will see events in their time order. Illustrations by the Children History readings afford admirable material for narration, and children enjoy narrating what they have read or heard. They love, too, to make illustrations. Children who had been reading Julius Caesar, and also Plutarch's life, were asked to make a picture of their favorite scene, and the results showed the extraordinary power of visualizing which the little people possess. Of course, that which they visualize, or imagine clearly, they know. It is a life possession. The drawings of the children in question are psychologically interesting as showing what various and sometimes obscure points appeal to the mind of a child, and also that children have the same intellectual pleasure as persons of cultivated mind in working out new hints and suggestions. The drawings, be it said, leave much to be desired, but they have this in common with the art of primitive peoples. They tell the tale directly and vividly. A girl of nine and a half pictures Julius Caesar conquering Britain. He rides in a chariot mounted on scythes. He is robed in blue, and bits of blue sky here and there give the complimentary color. In the distance a soldier plants the ensign bearing the Roman eagle, black on a pink ground. In the foreground is a hand-to-hand -hand combat between Roman and Britain, each having a sword of enormous length. Other figures are variously employed. Another gives us Antony making his speech after the death of Caesar. This girl, who is older, gives us architecture. You look through an arch which leads into a side street, and in the foreground Antony stands on a platform at the head of a flight of marble steps. Antony's attitude expresses indignation and scorn. Below is a crowd of Romans wearing the toga, whose attitudes show various shades of consternation and dismay. Behind is Antony's servant in uniform, holding his master's horse, and on the platform in the rear of Antony lies Caesar with the royal purple thrown over him. The chief value of the drawing, as a drawing, is that it tells the tale. Another girl draws Calpurnia begging Caesar not to go to the Senate. Caesar stands armed and perturbed, while Calpurnia holds his outstretched hand with both of hers as she kneels before him her face raised in entreaty, her loose blue night-robe and long golden hair give color to the picture. This artist is fourteen, and the drawing is better done. Another artist presents Brutus and Portia in the orchard with a south wall of red brick, espaliers, and two dignified figures which hardly tell their tale. Another child gives us the scene in the forum, Caesar seated in royal purple, Brutus kneeling before him, and Casca standing behind his chair with outstretched hand holding a dagger, saying, Speak, hands, for me. While Caesar says, Doth not Brutus bootless kneel? Again we get Lucius playing to Brutus in the tent. Brutus, armed cap a pea, seated on a stool, is vainly trying to read, while Lucius, a pretty figure, seated before him, plays the harp. The two sentries, also fully armed, are stretched on the floor, sound asleep. Another gives us Claudius, dressed as a woman at the woman's festival. The ladies with remarkable eyes, and each carrying a flaming torch. Another pictures with great spirit Caesar reading his history to the conquered Gauls, who stand in rows on the hillside listening to the great man with exemplary patience. 
In these original illustrations, several of them by older children than those we have in view here, we get an example of the various images that present themselves to the minds of children during the reading of a great work, and a single such glimpse into a child's mind convinces us of the importance of sustaining that mind upon strong meat. Imagination does not stir at the suggestion of the feeble, much diluted stuff that is too often put into children's hands. Playing at History Children have other ways of expressing the conceptions that fill them when they are duly fed. They play at their history lessons, dress up, make tableaux, act scenes, or they have a stage and their dolls act while they paint the scenery and speak the speeches. There is no end to the modes of expression children find when there is anything in them to express. The mistake we make is to suppose that imagination is fed by nature, or that it works on the insipid diet of children's storybooks. Let a child have the meat he requires in his history readings, and in the literature which naturally gathers round this history, and imagination will bestir itself without any help of ours. The child will live out in detail a thousand scenes of which he only gets the merest hint. End of Part 5 Chapter 18 Recording by Philip Gould